Mr. Blodgett, welcome aboard. Wes, welcome. Thiago, welcome. Where is your motivation? That's a perennial question. Henry, welcome. Nice to see you. CJ Stevens, welcome aboard. Thank you, Mr. Blodgett, for your audio report. Outstanding. It is uh, it is Sunday. <laughs> so Dan's trying to be productive. He's going to get one more thing done in the shop. I'll have you know that my grinder finished a few minutes ago and I did not run downstairs to put new parts in. I will wait until afterwards. Robert Isaac is here. All rise. Be seated. Uh, nice to see you, sir. Warren, my neighbor, who I've communicated with already today. <laughs> Welcome aboard. So we are in southern New Hampshire. If you didn't know that, New Hampshire is in the northeast of the United States. And um, it is partly cloudy. Temperature is 48 degrees. And the winds are west at 16 miles per hour. I can't convert that to uh, meters per fortnight. I'm sorry. So uh, lots done in the shop this week. A lot of fun. Uh, video is half halfway finished in editing. It'll it it should drop today. I can't, I say that a lot. It should drop today. Um, we'll be talking about. Uh, some of that, uh, what led to that video. And uh, there were some questions this week. So yesterday I did a random live. Some of you were there for uh, on Instagram while I was working in the shop. And there were some questions about uh, shop electricals. And I, th I thought we'd spend a little time today talking about uh, shop electrical issues. Mr. Blodgett is reporting 40 degrees and partly cloudy in Oregon snow the last two days. That's amazing. CJ Stevens reports 70 and sunny in East Tennessee. Um, Mr. Tauber says happy spring, everyone. Yes. So a friend of mine who I was just talking to on the phone, um, he is a member of the band Unburn the Candles. You should look them up. Uh, was telling me that the Trees are starting to blossom down in the Washington, D.C. area. There's actually a lot of things blossoming in the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, he asked me what it looked like around here because he grew up here. Uh, and if I look out my window and I, go, I look through the woods, I could see snow in the woods. And I can't quite see it from where I'm sitting, but uh, in, in the back of my house, there's a little bit of snow right up against the house. So we still have evidence of winter. Uh, Wes reports snow in southern Idaho. Chris reports 58 degrees and sunny. But you, you got to give your location. Get with the program, Chris. Mr. Isaac reports wet, cold, and gloomy in the Chicago. Oh, so my, my buddy to the north, Warren, uh, said he got an inch of snow. So we got snow pellets. They're not ice pellets. No, I think we did get ice pellets yesterday. I drove <laughs> I drove into Logan Airport yesterday. I do not recommend this to anyone. Um, Mr. Waller uh, has joined us from Minnesota. Plenty of snow there. <laughs> Henry, welcome aboard. 281 Kelvin uh, in Germany and raining. Okay, Chris Chris has revised his uh, report. It's 58 degrees and sunny in south-central Pennsylvania. Your apology is accepted. Graupel, yes. Kevin, very good. Um, I don't think it was... I'm not sure if it was Graupel. Uh, that's a very good question. We'll have to check with my meteorologist who lives down the street. But anyway, we had a little bit of something going on. But today, it's it's nice. It's a little dark because it's not perfectly sunny. So welcome to PFG Live, where we talk about meteorology incessantly for an hour, uh, which is not true at all. Uh, we talk about machining and precision and technology and uh, the philosophy of getting things right. Um, so this week, 
I, I did make a video, which I will publish on the YouTubes, uh, about the TL1 tool post. Now, you may recall, last week I undertook the challenge of slicing up some titanium salami for a, a local guy. And uh, in doing so, had to solve the problem of getting the correct cutoff tool uh, getting the correct cutoff tool set up in a tool holder. I had to, I had to buy a new tool holder, and um, it it was uh, quite challenging. However, we got that done. We 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 sliced it up and we delivered. Now you're going to hear the rest of the story. We wore out uh, the tool in in doing those twenty pieces, and this past week I replaced the tool early in the week I replaced the carbide cutter in the cutoff tool and figured I'll knock off the rest of the the parts it turns out I got seven more slices out of it but I quickly went from good quality to bad quality on the cut so I knew it wasn't simple tool wear and it turns out that the pressure of the of the of the cut especially with a cutoff tool, rotated my, my tool post. And if you've been following on Instagram, you, you knew about that pretty early. So I made a project out of improving the tool post and preventing that problem uh, reasonably expediently without spending a whole ton of time and uh, a whole ton of money. And I did. And it, it came out uh, came out quite nicely, and that's what the video is about. So we'll talk a little bit about that. I'll show you some pictures and uh, explain what what the challenges were there. And that, thus the thus the title of this segment, which is "Spindles Shall Tool Posts Shan't Rotate," um, and that that is that is the challenge. Uh, let me show you a picture of of the setup. And um, there we go. I'll move over here. <laughs> so, so there's the uh, there's the tool post. It's a, a Dorian V thirty five TC tool post, and you can see in the in the picture if you're watching the video. For those of you at home, I'll describe it. The bottom of the tool post has the central hole for the stud that is used to clamp it down. But then around it, there are four pinholes. And those four pinholes, we determined by uh, measurement, are 10 millimeter blind pinholes. And they're there specifically to do what we're doing uh, today. We're, we're pinning the tool post so it doesn't rotate. Uh, there's a T-nut with a post, uh, with a threaded post at the top that goes into the tool block that's on the TL1 and into a little T-slot and then gets uh, uh, pins down the, the uh, tool post. So you can typically, for, especially for light cuts, you could, you could operate it with just the central pin, crank down on the nut, and call it a day. But if you think about it, <laughs> eventually you're going to get a cut that, that will overcome the friction between the tool post and the tool block and it will it will spin and that's exactly what happened so we ended up with a uh, a problem and went about trying to uh, fix it so what i ended up doing is i ended up uh you know spoilers i ended up shimming the t-nut to remove any play and we were in particular looking for rotational play and then we fitted a pin into the T-nut, which engaged the holes on the tool post, and we're going to call that good enough. So, you know, one of the things that has we've we've seen in the past, uh, especially uh, if you've been following on Instagram, is Robin Renzetti. Uh, he ditched the compound on his lathe and replaced it with a solid uh, a solid tool tool post is that a tool post or tool post bl block anyway uh and that greatly increased the uh, stiffness of his setup on the tl1 there is no 
there is no compound, but we still had uh, the problem. So one option is to replace the tool block that has the T-slot in it and with a with a custom made block that accepts the um, the pins and provides for the the uh, the lockdown stud on the Dorian tool post. I, that's a big project, and I wasn't in the mood for it. So we shimmed the we shimmed the T nut. We made a shim. We used cyanoacrylate to attach it to the to the uh, T nut. And then we did a couple of other modifications. We used a we upset the bottom of the hole on the T nut so that the pins wouldn't fall through. And then we proceeded to mount the whole thing up. So measured measured rotation on the thing was uh, on the order of on the order of uh, one to two thousandths of an inch at about one one to two inches. I don't remember the exact numbers, which I considered a success. So that's all set up. I'm going. To, I, I did not get a chance to run a couple more titanium uh, cuts, but I, that's my plan. I, I should be doing that today. So big success. Uh, you know, not a lot of time invested, except for the fact that I made a video about it. And let me tell you, when you make a video about something, it will take three to five times longer than just doing it. But it was worth doing. And uh, recorded all the all the wisdom on that. So uh, expect that to come to come drop down today. I'm curious what you guys do for um, tool holding on your lathe. Now, this lathe, the TL1, is a CNC tool room lathe, so it's not a full uh, tool changing, bar feeding CNC lathe uh, in in production. So it's a different animal. Some of you have full manual lathes. Some of you have full CNC lathes. This is sort of a CNC kind of wants to look like a manual lathe. And now I am expecting that it's going to behave a little better um, and take heavier cuts. So we shall see. But all in all, I've been, I've been quite happy with the TL1 lathe. I've been quite happy with the Dorian uh, tool post. And... Um, we will we will keep uh, keep you apprised of of what's uh, what's going on. So what lathes? This is this is turning into I, the I love lathe episode of uh, PFG Live. I'm curious uh, what lathes are you guys running and what are you doing for tool posts? You can put it in the chat if you uh, if you can if you're live with us today. Uh, otherwise, um, let's see. Wes says he's going to build a gang tool setup for your Tormach. So I have a friend of mine, in fact, MHM Machining on Instagram. Uh, Adam did exactly that. So I should put you guys together so you could talk. He is using gang tooling on his Tormach and he's, he does great work with it. So uh, check it out. So Henry, I was waiting for this, says, have you considered using a multi-fix tool post? I think they are pretty good for such machines. Uh, I have considered it. I'm sort of invested in the Dorian tool holders, so the multi-fix looks great. I know Adam Booth uses the multi-fix. Um, I believe that uh, 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 Stefan Gottswinter uses a smaller series of the multi-fix. They look great, except I'm a little far down the road. Samuel Irons reports he's got a Monarch 10 E KDK wanting a BXA. Now, can we just have a moment and a moment of silence for the Monarch 10 E and just think about its magnificence? I actually know where there's a Monarch uh, 10EE hiding in storage, and if I had room, I'd go after it. Robert, I Robert Isaac says, I do the upside-down run the spindle in reverse method. Works great for him on a full manual lathe with a QC tool post. My concern with that is it is literally lifting the cross slide in a direction that it's not meant to go. I'm a little concerned about that. I know it works, but if the tool pressures were high, I think something might move. Um, 
Kevin Blodgett is running a 10-inch Atlas, Atlas Craftsman with an AXA Aloris. Very nice. It spins if I take too heavy a cut. Welcome to the club. Um, CJ Stevens says, I use a thrust bearing between the top nut and the tool post. I don't have to crank on the nut anymore, and the tool post does not shift. Yeah, the thrust bearing is an interesting, uh, an interesting option. Um, I saw that recently, right? This past week, somebody was doing something with a thrust bearing. Henry says it's super common in Germany for uh, to see the multifix. Like I said, I, I, I really like the multifix, but I don't think it, we're going that way. Uh, Chris says, I have, I, I'm here to learn. I have little knowledge to share. We're here to teach you, and we have little knowledge to share. But we do it anyway. Uh, Warren says he's got an MSC 13 by 40 which I think is a Taiwan machine, if it's old enough, uh, with an AXA and the compound, and a Sheldon R15 with a BXA that really needs a CXA. So the the size of the you know uh, yeah it's still showing in the in the picture here, the size of the V35 uh, TC is equivalent to the CXA. Um, so that's the size this is. This is effectively a CXA. Ah, Kevin uh, tells me that inheritance machining just added the thrust bearing. Good. Yeah, I knew I saw it somewhere. Um, I don't think on this tool post, I don't think the thrust bearing, well, I, I'm not sure. I want to say that there's no particular advantage, but I think you might be right. Uh, I do have a washer. You can see it in the picture up here. Uh, I do have a washer that goes under the nut and I wonder if I replace that washer with a thrust bearing if I'd get a little a little better performance. Uh, yeah, so I Warren, I had a Jet 13 by 40 Taiwan made, and I bet you it's the same iron. And, the, and a great story about that is my makerspace, which is Make It Labs over in Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, has my old lathe, which was just a riot. I told that story before. And that is the Jet uh, 13 by 40. And that was a great machine. And they're literally wearing it out, which is fine with me. <laughs> so, well, pretty cool. Um, we, we're gonna ha we may have to call this the I Love Lathe segment. Um, so I have another project coming up. Mr. Blodgett, I hope your ears are burning, uh, where I will be slicing up some A2 tool steel uh, in, in its soft state to make some special tools for a special person. Uh, and I've been waiting to do that. So we, the, uh, Kevin, Kevin has an application where I promised him I'd make some special, uh, not quite laps. It's going to be, it's going to be a flat file really. And we're going to make that out of a two tool steel, but we have to make it out of inch and a quarter you see where this is going, uh, and uh, now I can uh, now I have the cutoff tool. So the titanium project is going to bleed into the A2 uh, salami project. So we will get that going for you. Um, looking forward to doing that. Plus, we'll show off the new oven, uh, the new hot shot, which is now paired up with the old hot shot, and uh, sitting in the heat treating department. So that's coming. So stand by for that. Um, yeah, so that was the, that was the lathe report. Uh, pretty, <laughs> pretty happy about how things went. Yes. Kevin Blodgett says he's excited for some A2 salami. It's coming, but be careful how you bite it because <laughs> it's going to be hard. Anyway, that will be a video and we'll share that. And, uh, of course, Kevin, I'm going to require you to shoot some video of applying the new tools to the items that they're going to be operating on so we can share it with everyone. So that's the, uh, that's the spindles shall and tool posts shant segment and, uh, looking forward to uh, sharing some more information about the lathe. Uh, let's see what else is going on. So I got questions this week, uh, 
yesterday during the Instagram live, the random live, uh, about shop electricals. And Aaron Walla is here in the chat room, and, and he was uh, asking some questions. So I thought I would just describe my approach to the shop electrical problem and uh, and how we've solved it. So my... My shop is fed off of a 100 amp breaker off of my main panel. And then we have a sub panel in the shop, which distributes that. And then we have a sub sub panel <laughs> in the shop. So uh, if, you, if you walk into my shop from the house, you are facing uh, west. So on the, on the southwest, I'm sorry, on the southeast corner of the shop is the is the sub panel where there is a main breaker um and there is a sub panel and then in the let's see if i get this right the northwest corner of the shop which is the department of welding department um that's where the the sub sub panel is uh which is not too interesting the fact that there's two two panels it just made it easier because i uh I did it in two stages. We did the initial wiring of the shop. And then later, when the Department of Welding Department got pretty busy and we added the heat treating ovens, I wanted an additional uh, bunch of outlets. And it was just easier to put a sub-panel there for the, for the breakers. Because when you... I don't know if you're aware of this, but every time you put in a 220 breaker, it has to have... I'm sorry. I take that back. Every time you put in a 220-volt outlet, it has to have its own breaker. Uh, you don't parallel up 220 outlets. At least at the time we did this, that was my understanding of how the code was written. Uh, Kevin asks, any three-phase? Uh, I'm going to explain that in a second. <laughs> so we have a, a bunch of, uh, of course, we have a bunch of 110-volt outlets. Oh, and I'll, let me preface all this by saying this is, how we are, this is how we roll in the United States. I know Henry enjoys probably 400-volt three-phase service to the home. Is that correct? Let me know in the chat. Um, here in the United States, we get typically single-phase power off the pole in the flavor of 220 volts or 230 volts, depending on how you want to say it, and and a uh, a neutral, or actually it's ground as it comes from the pole. Once it hits your main panel, uh, it becomes neutral, and the two legs of of power. So if you use the two legs, L1 and L2, you get 230 volts. If you use one leg going to neutral you get 115 volts, which the average homeowner, that's all they know about. So uh, in the shop, we have twist lock connectors for two, for uh, 230 volts, which are 30 amp, 230 volt twist locks, each one on its own breaker. And that happens one, two, three, four, five, six, six or seven times in the shop we have those outlets. Uh, so now to answer Kevin's question, is there any three phase? There's no three phase that's coming into the shop, uh, but we make three phase and we do it two different ways. Uh, one is I have a pair of phase perfect 10 horsepower phase converters that are brilliant. Now that each one of those is capable of, of feeding multiple machines, but I'm not using them that way. I'm using them to feed individual machines. One of them is on the vertical machining center, which is a 10 horsepower machine. Nothing else is connected to that. Um, <laughs> and uh, K-Bonk says, we have two-phase here. OMG. Uh, yeah, it's not two-phase. You know that. Uh the second phase perfect is driving only the grinder, okay? Every other machine that needs three phase has a VFD on it, a variable frequency drive. For example, the bridge port has a VFD. The saw has a VFD, almost. Uh, the TL1 lathe comes from the factory with a VFD internally, 
So it takes single phase. It does not need three phase. So that's my that's how I make three phase in the shop. If I needed three phase, <laughs> K Box says it's a thing. Two phase. Is that like having three phase except one leg is out? Is that I I don't know how it works. You'll have to ed educate me. Uh, but that's how I make three phase in the shop. I make it with converters, and and uh, we do not have three phase coming in now. In my old shop, when I lived one town over, <laughs> I'll tell you, Indiana John, give me a second. When I lived one town over, we were on the main feeder, the, the main high voltage feeder went right over our driveway, and I actually had the power company in, um, and they told me they'll give me three phase. It would cost me $3,500 to put up a pole and three pigs, which is a term for uh, the power transformers, the round, those big cans. I needed three can, three of those, three pigs, and a pole, and it would cost me $3,500. Now, let's just stop and think about that for a second. That is cheap. <laughs> so I could have three phase, all I could eat at the old shop, but then I started looking into the wiring and the breakers and all the infrastructure for three phase and I elected not to do it. Um, uh, parts of New England are actually running on uh, DC, uh, and and uh, some of them are just running off of D cells. No, that's not true. I I don't know what what two phase means. So it's it, it's possible. I'm not an expert. I am not a licensed electrician. I'm not even close. But uh, I know there's some weird stuff that goes on. So to answer Indiana John, uh, he says, what do you mean by the saw has a VFD almost? So the saw, which is my uh, vertical band saw, which is a dual ML from 1941. It's a glorious machine. Um, that is a three-phase machine. It has this beautiful big three-phase motor in it and I was running it off of one of my phase perfect converters uh, in parallel with at the time it was in parallel with my grinder so I had my brown and sharp grinder and the saw running off of that three-phase converter worked great but because reasons, because I moved the saw to the opposite corner of the shop, I decided I wanted it to have its own VFD. And the reason I said almost is because that project is not done yet. So I still haven't finished it. The VFD is mounted. It's sitting there splayed open waiting for me to go in and finish the wiring. So the almost is me. I am the delay. I am the delay. Um... So, K-Bonk says, bingo, Indiana John, it is an old industrial system. I guess, I, so I don't know about the so-called two-phase power. Um, interesting. Uh, while we're on the topic of shop electricals, I thought I would amuse you guys. My, my Okamoto grinder is designed for 200 volts. Uh, that's not a misprint. Not 230 not 115, 200 volts. Because in Japan, apparently, 200 volt AC is, is a system. So when I got the grinder, along with it came a transformer that would take um, 220 volts and convert it to 200 volts. Not much of a change, but it had to go through a transformer. <laughs> Chris understands. Uh so that same transformer also had taps. So if you had 460 volts, three phase, very industrial, also common, that it would take 460 in and deliver 200 volts. Um, no, it also, Indiana John, it also had taps for 208. So it, it, had, it was a really flexible system. So the way I have the grinder set up is... I make 
230 volt three phase. It goes in to the transformer and 200 volt three phase comes out and goes to the Okamoto. Um, the 50 cycle, 60 cycle didn't matter in that design. So that was, that was fine. In fact, on the side of the control, I'll post a picture of this uh, later today or, or, or whatever. Uh, there is a, an outlet. Well, when we look at it, we see a 115-volt outlet, and it is labeled 100 volts AC. <laughs> it's not a misprint. So that's the story. Uh, I think I've pretty well described the entire electrical system in the shop. Now you might ask, well, what if you got you know, all the machines running is 100 amps enough? And the answer is, for me and the way I run the, the shop and for not having employees even when I'm working as hard as I can to get all the robots going at once, it, it's not a problem. So I've lived on a 100 amp single phase system for, for years. Uh, would I, would I like more? Yeah. But unless I get more floor space, it, I don't think it's going to matter. So that's my situation. If anybody has any shop electrical questions, I'll attempt to field them and remind you that I am not an electrical, uh, I'm not an electrician. I am an electrical engineer, but I'm not an electrician. Um, it turns out in the great state of New Hampshire, you can, a, a homeowner can do repairs. So when I, you know, when we put in big, big stuff, I, an electrician will come in and do the electricals and, and all that kind of stuff. But when, you know, if I have to replace an outlet or wire, you know, wire an outlet or do that kind of stuff, I do it myself, and I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. Uh, K-Box says, I, I think this, he says, I think it's a Delta Y thing. Same with two-phase. It's real flexible. Yeah, I don't know my Deltas from my Ys, so I can't help you there, buddy. I am incapable of helping you on that one. Uh, so do you guys have any weird electrical uh, stuff going on? How much of your shop is solar, says K-Bonk. So when my solar panels, so I do have a full solar panel system, and we have 40, I think it's 43 panels. Uh, it, it, it is limited by the inverter. I have a little more power available from the panels than the inverter could handle. Uh, and we limit out at approximately 11 kilowatts. If the sun is shining uh, on a perfect day, then we're, we're pinned at 11 kilowatts getting generated. And we have a saying in the house, which is, uh, you know, make, make stuff when the sun shines. <laughs> it's like make hay when the sun shines. So I will grind stones when the sun shines. I will charge my EV when the sun shines. Uh, we, we're actually conscious of when we're generating electric so we don't push it onto the grid where we get credit for it, but we, we get more uh, value out of the solar electric we generate by using it as we generate it. So we, we try, if the sun is shining, we try to be using it. I did play in the band Delta Y, and I'm I'm glad you remember it. I've been trying to forget. Uh, Chris says, "I am the delay," on his 7.5 horsepower rotary. <laughs> yeah, we could have a whole podcast about being the delay. Warren Jones says, "Everything I have here is weird, electrical and otherwise." You don't have to share those details with us, Warren. It's okay. K-Bonk says, I got burnt by Delta Y. It's a mess. So, um, yeah, I don't understand Delta Y and why Delta and uh, why not. So it'll have to wait. Anyway, that's the electrical update. I'll tell you another thing, uh, especially if you have a, a garage shop. My garage, when I bought the house, had six light bulbs in the ceiling of the of the garage, which is a three-car garage, which is now the shop. By the way, my, my kids have never seen a car in a garage. They don't even know what that means. Um, there are these lights, these LED lights that you can buy on Amazon, because I did. They're called corn cob lights, and they look like 
they look like an oversized Foster's can. And they're just like chock full of LEDs. And they look like corn cobs, right? And they put out, I think, 8,000 lumens. It's ridiculous how much how much they put out. And all I did, I, I went through a couple of phases, but you unscrew the light bulbs in your you know, in your outlet and you screw one of these things in and stand back because they put out a stupid amount of light. And because they're LEDs, they're pretty low power uh, consumption. So there's six of those in the shop for the general light. And then I have some uh, detail lights. Yes, Dan uh, philosophizes and says, someday we will all be old and die and some young kid will move into the palaces we create and not understand. It's true, but I'll be dead and I don't care. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with my shop space. I say this cautiously because I joke around that I would like a bigger space and maybe one day I'll go crazy and and move out into a big commercial space but frankly it's a real interesting challenge to deal with what you've got and I'm kind of enjoying that part of it now and and uh, making the most of, of what's available and I think we're squeezing a lot out of the electricals between the between the uh, the phase converters the solar electric you know, the the voluminous wiring <laughs> properly done. I think we're squeezing as much as we can out of it. So that's the update on Shop Electrical. Uh, Robert Simpson says, people don't understand the shop air I ran everywhere now. Yeah, same thing. Uh, speaking of shop air, here's a question for you. I run copper. I run three-quarter inch copper as my shop air distribution and i've never been attracted to some of these special airline um, products which are plastic coated aluminum um, pex and, and some of the other products i've always just stuck with three-quarter inch copper and i've been very very happy with it i'm curious what you guys are running for air Yeah. Dan Gilbert says, I agree. My hobby is making the shop not have dust in it. Patching holes in the wall, putting filters on, etc. Yeah, copper is the way to go, he says. Yeah, I've been very, very happy with copper for the air distribution. And it's it's logical. I know how to I know how to solder copper. I know a really super good plumber who might even pop in. Uh and and he helped me with a bunch of uh a bunch of the copper. So we've got We've got air run all around the shop and we have a branch of air down in the basement where the 3D printer uh, farm is and the laser is. So, uh, yeah, we have copper everywhere. And, yeah, I know copper got expensive, but it's not so expensive that you can't. Yeah, I, just as I said that, K-Bonk's uh, comment popped up. Have you priced out three-quarter inch copper? I have not. Um, I... I have uh, a couple of a couple of uh, sticks of ten foot. Was it ten foot or more? It might be more than ten foot copper just sitting in in stock, and I, it's probably worth a mint right now. CJ Stevens is running Prime Fit PEX um, on your sixty gallon compressor. Art uh, Wes says ABS in his shop. So um, I know one of the things I'm I warn people about is PVC. Now I, I know you said ABS and it's not PVC, but don't use PVC piping for air. Okay. It can shatter. If it goes, it's going to grenade. Um, and that's not good. If copper goes, it's going to bend and not, not sh grenade. Uh, if PEX goes, it's, it's not going to grenade. So, uh, do not use PVC pipe, please for air. Um, Dan, Dan Gilbert says, I found an old picture of the MIT shop. Dan works at MIT at the machine, uh, 
machine shop of the mechanical engineering department. Uh, and there was one pipe in the ceiling. Now it's full. I believe that. Originally, they ran everything the floor below and punched holes through the floor and ran it up to each machine. This means there are a bunch of holes that get punched through the floor tiles. Oh, my God. So you have to, you have to frame that section of original steel pipe and just hang it on the wall. Indiana John correctly says any pressure vessel is a bomb. Yes. Copper will split, but it won't shatter. That's the nice thing about copper. Um, yeah, PV, and Indiana John says PVC would be pretty sketchy. Please, folks, no PVC for air, okay? But the PEX, I think you can, you can go buy PEX uh, at, at Home Depot and... The fittings are the issue, but PEX is not a bad choice. CJ Stevens says, we had a PVC explosion in a shop I worked at. It sent a customer car to the body shop. No injuries, possibly a brown stain or two. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be around uh, when that happened. So I've never heard anything to dissuade me from copper except for the price. And, you know, we deal with that. So it's it's interesting. We've talked about electrical infrastructure and that led logically to air infrastructure in the shop. And I suppose if we had, you know, big industrial shops where we had a dozen machines, we'd be talking about coolant plumbing in the shop. Thankfully, uh we we don't have to do that. In fact, uh, all of my coolant needs are managed by uh, making my own distilled water and using, uh, you know, mixing it myself. So, uh, yeah, lots of infrastructure. And when it all works and you don't have to think about it anymore, that's the best because then you can just get to work. Okay. I think we did it uh, on shop electricals. Um. Oh, I got an interesting question. Aha. K-Bonk asks, water slash moisture of compressed air? Question mark. So I've gone through a couple of generations of air. Um, and I've, I've done some interesting things. So in my shop right now, I have, I, I, let me back up one generation. So I used to have a piston compressor, a Quincy, an automatic drain valve on it, and I had a, uh, a an air refrigerator, you know, a, a, an air dryer. I had, I had two air dryers, a little one and a bigger one. The bigger one was a piece of shit, and I'm very happy we got rid of it. Uh, it was a made-in-China piece of junk, uh, which came from... Easton compressor, I think. I don't even know if they're still around. It was horrible. Anyway, uh, the most important things I've done are on my distribution system around the shop. There's a pitch in the in the pipe, and at the at from the it, it gets fed at the top, and when it gets to the bottom, there is a drain. That's number one. Number two, every tap off of that main line is a reverse trap so the the it goes up over and then down and that is another uh, preventative measure and now that i have the kaiser compressor i have a kaiser sxt5 no sx5t compressor that has a built-in dryer uh with a really nice system they're very proud of it and and they should be because it will accumulate water and then uh, open a valve and spit the water out a pipe, but not any air. It's nice. It's nicely done and it works great. And I have a, a hose going into a five-gallon jug, um, and if, it's never gotten over two gallons before I emptied it. Uh, so that system works fantastically well. And then when I do operate my drain valve. I've never seen any 
any liquid come out of it. I have very, very dry air now. So thanks to the Kaser um, system, I've been very happy. But before that, I did have an air dryer and I did have a little a little uh, plastic bottle on it. And it, it, it also didn't, didn't get much. Um, and every now and then I'll walk up to the, the, the big valve in the shop at, at the lowest point and I will open it. Now, one little luxury thing I did in the shop is I piped that, I hard piped that outside and, and pointed down and it's got a little, you know, uh, vinyl siding, nice uh, cover over it. And every now and then, when I open that valve, it just blows out. I don't have I don't have to think about, you know, the other end of it. And then I close it a couple of seconds, and we're done. So I have had zero, zero moisture issues in the air system now for for two generations of air, which represents about fifteen years. Um, it is worth putting some thought into it. Now, in my previous shop. I take it back. My zero moisture claim is only 12 years. In the previous shop, I designed it wrong. So let me share with you how not to design an air system. The uh, I did have the pitch, okay? No, no, I didn't I didn't have the pitch. That was before I even had that wisdom. So I had the distribution line going around the shop, three-quarter inch copper, and then at every uh, wherever I wanted to drop, I had a T and it came down to, you know, basically belly button level. And I had my quick disconnect and then it continued down to a valve. So that was a low point. However, here's the error. I had seven low points. So if you wanted to drain the system, you literally had to go around, open and close seven valves. Okay. The reverse trap at the top eliminates that, and you have one low point. That's the first bit of wisdom I got from making the mistake the first time. The second bit of wisdom I got uh, from finding some ancient document about how to design an air system was, in fact, that pitch to, to feed it from the high and go all the way down to the low. Uh, and then finally, putting in a proper air dryer was the last piece of the puzzle and you know between each of those things it's been a it's been a great a great system absolutely don't have to think about it at all uh, i i check it every now and then i i do i have a, a valve on the bottom of my pressure tank i have an 80 gallon pressure tank um, i've never seen a drop of moisture come out of it so there you go that's the air system now we don't ever have to talk about air systems again. <laughs> the other, oh, the last thing I did to improve the quality of life with the air system is I got myself like a four-inch air gauge, uh, a pressure gauge, and I put it, so now when you enter the shop from the house, right in front of your nose, right in front of your face is an air gauge, a big air gauge, and you can just visually check the, the system pressure. because you can't, And you can't hear the compressor anymore because it's in the basement. That's the other thing I changed. Because it's nice and quiet, it lives in the basement. So those were all the improvements that I did on uh, air system. Yep, Robert Simpson says, pitch is a concern in water drains too. Absolutely. Um, you, you have to think about pitch, pitch your pipes. That's what I'm saying. Pitch your pipes. That was the backup band when I went to see Unburn the Candles. And they were good too. Crazy bassist. So I got a question, was it yesterday? On the Instagram Live, have I ever done anything with chat GPT? And that got me thinking about <laughs> this whole revolution in, in AI. So... You know, when I was in school at MIT, there was the AI lab. So I was I was aware of AI in 1980. Um, but really, it has not become uh, 
something that the general public has ever even heard the words about until relatively recently. And now, with these publicly available tools like ChatGPT and DALI, um, everybody knows about it and everybody's talking about it. So ChatGPT is a text-based AI system that you have access to. And you literally can just type a question, ask it to do something, and it will do it. And it will sound really authoritative when it does it, even if it's wrong. Uh, so I've played with it. It's pretty interesting. And then I started hearing about students like having getting their papers written by, by just giving the assignment to Chad GPT. Well, the teachers are not stupid, okay? They got... They, they, they figured this out pretty early. So the other day I, I heard my son, um, no, that's different from Media Lab. So the, the AI lab was totally separate from Media Lab. They are not the same thing. Um, I mean, you know, everybody talks to everybody, but they were, they were totally different buildings, different mindsets. I mean, now... They have what's called CSAIL or Computer Science and AI Laboratory or something. They kind of merged the computer science and, and AI. They were separate back in the day. Back in my day, we didn't use artificial intelligence. We used the real thing. So anyway, so chat GPT, you could just type, type stuff at it, say, uh, Write a speech as spoken by Julius Caesar declaring eggplant parmesan the best food ever, and it will do it. <laughs> uh, then th there's another AI called uh, Dali, D-A-L-L-E, um, in tribute to an artist, Dali, and it does graphical things. And you can say, um, make a picture, make a painting in the style of Van Gogh of a Haas Teal One lathe and stand back because it will do that. <laughs> so back to the original question, have I ever used, um, the, the, the user said chat GPT, but I'm going to just substitute AI. Have I used AI in any of my stuff yet? If you look at the YouTube videos I recently released, there was a video, a short video I did about audio for video, which was just, it was the experiments I was doing with microphones like this one, and it turned into a video. Well, if you look at the thumbnail for that video, you'll see an emoji. That's not an off-the-shelf emoji. I... Uh, directed Dolly 2 to generate that graphic. And it was about the fifth go-around uh, of describing what I wanted, that I got what I wanted. And even then, I had to... I didn't know how to tell it to give it to me on a clear field with no shadow, blah, blah, blah. So I, I had to take that graphic into a Photoshop and just do a teeny bit of, of uh, editing to it. But that image never existed before on planet Earth. And and uh, I had Dolly make it. So did I ever use it for anything practical? Yes. I would say that is the very first practical use of, uh, of modern AI that I have used for, for anything. Now, I heard my son, you know, he's in high school. I heard him talking about ChatGPT. And I was getting concerned because of the potential for cheating. And I was getting all, you know, ready to do the, the father thing and wave, wave the crooked finger uh, in his face. And I said, well, how are you using it? And he said, well, I write a paper and then I give it to, I, I ask chat GPT to critique my paper. And I'm like, I, he stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, that's actually pretty brilliant because you're not asking it to cheat. You've written the paper. You've done the research. You've cited your sources. And now you're handing it over to this AI and say, please critique this. And it might, 
actually find some things that are useful. You know, the, there have been products like Grammarly, uh, which is a subscription service where you can you can give it stuff you've written and it will check grammar. It'll it actually do it in real time, um, and and that kind of thing. And he was basically saying that this is like Grammarly on steroids, and I couldn't argue with that. It was pretty interesting. So think about that. Uh, other folks in the maker world have been asking ChatGPT to write Python code to achieve certain things, and they've been successful. Perfect? No. I, I've never heard of it coming out of the chute as, as something that just works. But maybe getting most of the heavy lifting done? Quite possibly. So, I don't know. Let's see. Maybe we can get uh, uh, ChatGPT to write us some G-code. <laughs> Please produce G-code for a Haas TL1 lathe to generate a, a, a chess piece, you know, a pawn. I don't know. Am I going to try it? No. No, I'm not. I like my tools too much. I like my lathe too much <laughs> to try it. But that might be something interesting. So anyway, that's my take on AI. I will be happy to take any of your questions on any topic um, and and we'll uh, use those to, uh, to wrap up our day here. Meanwhile, I'm going to have a sip of tea. I hope you'll excuse me. So K-Bonk, you said hum like you were going to say something, but wasn't sure yet. Oh, while, uh, while you guys are thinking of questions, if you, if you have any questions, I will just remind you of a couple of things. The audio portion of this, uh, video is, is a podcast and it's called PFG live and it is available on your favorite podcatcher. We are published with Apple podcasts and Spotify and then various other apps use the same databases as those two. And basically, in 95% of the cases, you'll be able to find us. Art that makes art, which is Wes, says you can check the program in a G-code simulator. That's true. K-Bonk, thank you. He says your son is a thinker. Thank you very much. I think so too. He's, he's okay. Don't tell him I said so. It'll go to his head. Um, another thing I'll remind you that if you're interested in getting yourself some PFG stones, precision ground stones for the precision machinist, you can go to pfgstones.com and I'll make them for you. In fact, I'm making them right now. So uh, Chris asks, was looking at your angled PFG stones, we say beveled, you say angled, it's okay. Does the combination of the two grits make any difference, make a difference for a large dovetail? Doesn't it wear one portion more? Um, so you can use the, the bevel that has the two grits showing. You could use them just like you would use any other uh, surface on the PFG stone. It is, it is ground the same way. Will they wear differently? Yes, but... PFG stones, if you're using them properly and not using them for, uh, you know, removing the dross from a flame cut, <clears throat> um, the wear is negligible. So, yes, you could use that surface. Uh, and when you order your bevels on your PFG stones, you get to choose which way you want it beveled. Okay? So, you get to choose that. Uh, Chris Tauber, uh, I'm sorry, Carl Tauber says, when you make beveled stones, do you make parallelograms so both grits are available? No. The reason for that is work holding. Um, putting a, putting a bevel on both sides of the stone is a real pain in the neck from a work holding standpoint. And, um, it, it's, it's not clear to me whether it's necessary. If you, ins I, I don't want to say this because it would screw up my process if you if you 
if you needed it. But if you say if you came to me and said I want I want it that way, I'll accommodate and we'll figure it out. But I don't recommend it. Um Samuel Irons says, do you think you could power a 10 E motor generator type with a VFD? I was using an RPC. Um, motor generator type, yes. So here's the thing about VFDs is one VFD goes with one motor, period. In fact, uh, the manufacturers don't even recommend using a connector that it gets wired to a motor. One VFD gets wired to one motor. So if, if you're driving a motor, absolutely. The nice thing about VFDs is the soft start. You can program it to accelerate that motor however you want. And I think that's good for, for all the mechanicals involved. Warren Jones says, this whole AI thing seems like an excuse for being lazy. <laughs> that is incorrect. Oh, Warren. Yes, thank you for your referral, Warren. I, I actually saw that order come in. So, Warren, you get, you've get you earned your referral fee, and that thing that you wanted, the thing, is coming. Don't worry. And we'll go for a cheeseburger. Uh, so those are all the questions. So I think we covered everything. Um, I'm also noting with interest that I'm starting to run out of stock on balancing rings. So I'm about to uh, tool back up to do another run of balancing rings. I tend to make them about 100 at a time, um, and I, I, I have to do it. So we're going to get on that real soon now. So expect to see some, some uh, CNC action. Dan catches me before I close this thing up with, I have a question, comma, and we will now patiently wait for Dan's question while I have a sip of tea. Um, Dan says, could you quickly review some auto collimators? Dan, can I quickly do anything? Um, I'm not sure. I am not an auto collimator expert. So the answer to that is no, I'm, I'm even probably much more of a student than you on that topic. So I don't think I have a lot of wisdom on auto collimators. I apologize. K-Bonk says, I have heard, can't confirm, that a VFD will mess up the switch gear uh, in a Samuel Irons. He was talking about a 10 E. Yeah, you guys talk, you, you connect to each other offline. I don't know the answer to that. Indiana John says, would you consider doing aluminum balancing rings? Um, I have not thought about going aluminum. Why would you why would you want aluminum? I don't there's no inherent problem with aluminum, but um I have not considered it. Ah, okay. Gotcha, Dan. So that's a that's an interesting question. The 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 10EEs, the Monarch 10EEs had some interesting stuff in them electrically, so which I have no knowledge of. But uh vintagemachinery.org, Keith Rucker uh, is up to his elbows in exactly that problem. So go to his channel, uh, vintagemachinery.org, Keith Rucker and look at his videos on the subject because he's been working on a conversion um, and he might have the, all the answers for you there. Yes, uh, Greenwood, excellent question. He says, I have a toolmaker friend that I got a hard Arkansas stone that is flat ground, from whom I got an Arkansas stone that is flat ground. The feel is very different from a PFG stone. Thoughts? I don't think it can work exactly like a PFG stone. The Yes, the difference is that the Arkansas stone has no pores in it and it has no place for the swarf that it cuts to go, if there is any. Um, that People often ask me about PFG stone grits. The only real importance of the grit of a PFG stone is the fact that 
the coarser stones have more places for uh, material to go and get out of the way. Whereas an Arkansas stone tends to be very dense and it doesn't really have a place for the swarf to go. So that's a major difference. And um, that's probably why the feel is so different. I hope that answers your question. Um, I actually got some Arkansas stones and played with the idea of grinding them, but um, we never got anywhere with that. Okay, I just read all your comments. <laughs> no questions, lots of agreement, and chatting amongst yourselves, which is excellent. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Oh, happy to help, Chris. Wondering what two different grits do for a PFG. So if you go to pfg.gg or pfgstones.com, somewhere on the information page, I, I specify the grits uh, for both the silicon carbide round stones and the um, aluminum oxide stones. So at least you know what we're talking about. But you can't think about grit the same way because we're not doing material removal, which only happens with sufficient pressure the sufficient pressure comes from the non-flat situation right you guys are awesome thanks for joining me today on a sunday this has been a lot of fun uh if you have uh questions ideas or folks that you would like to see guest on pfg live please send them along to me you could reach me via direct message on instagram uh, links in bio, and uh, we will try to uh, accommodate. I have a couple of names of people that uh, need to be guests soon, and we will uh, try to get them on. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for being here. I actually have to get back in the shop and finish making stones for you. Six-inch stones today. Take care, everyone. Great talk.